we have an agenda and it is to make the work better and we trust each other to help do that when you look at how the agency functions i think trust is one of the main attributes that you need you need to trust the people that you surround yourself with and that you work with from every level and i think once you have that then then you can pretty much conquer anything What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Martin Beverly, the CSO, and Richard Brim, the CCO of Adam and Eve DDB in London. Apparently, one of the world's best agencies. Agree or disagree? Um, no, yeah. Maybe up there. I mean, I interviewed Claire Strick at one of your planners recently, and she was pretty adamant that Adam and Eve's did she say the best or one of the best at <laughs> the top one and a half she's agencies a, of the world? She's overconfident, that Claire Strickett. I like it. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Adam and Eve DDB and what we're going to talk about today, which I should probably establish before we get into Adam and Eve DDB, is how the account planners and the creative department, at the very least, we'll probably touch on other types of people at Adam and Eve DDB, but how they, how they work together. A topic that Martin suggested that we talk about. And, and I love it. And I love the fact that Richard, you're open to talking about this. I don't reach out to a lot of CCOs because I'm, I'm so used to having to go through traffic management to talk to the creative department. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's awesome that you're here and, and willing to have this, this conversation. Richard, as the chief creative officer, tell us a bit about Adam and Eve DDB what are some of the very well-known campaigns? Well, the campaigns that might be very well-known in the UK that might be internationally known, but they could maybe have a bit more push internationally. We are about 300 strong in the UK and uh, about 50 in New York. And we work across all sorts of clients in all sorts of disciplines, doing all sorts of work. We are quite well known for work we do around the holiday season, especially for one of our clients called John Lewis. And we put out a holiday spot for them every year that's garnered some attention over the last couple of years. But we work from every, with everybody from VW to loads of different people, the EA Games, PlayStation, We've got the Lloyds Banking Group, which is a big banking group in the UK. Mm-hmm. So very varied mix of clients. And we're sort of very proud of the varied work we do for them as well. I think having a client like John Lewis, which is very specifically a certain type of work, it's very easy to become just known for that type of big emotional advertising. But I think one thing we pride ourselves at Adam and Eve is being able to wear many different hats and engage people emotionally in very different ways of storytelling and, and pieces of work. So the work we do for something like Marmite, which is equivalent to Vegemite, you might will know, is, is very, very different to the way we do for John Lewis, which is very different to the way we do for PlayStation and FIFA. We're very proud of our sort of diversity and the work. Yeah. That's, I appreciate you trying to relate to me by throwing in Vegemite there. That was that was good, yeah, just give you a good hardcore <laughs> relating there. I think it's also fair to say that the John Lewis work that you've done over the past few years, first of all, that the Christmas season in the UK is, is essentially like the US Super Bowl and that the John Lewis work is consistently yeah. the work that everybody else is compared to. Is that hyperbolic? I think it has kind of set a little bit of a trend. A lot of people have talked about the Super Bowl moment in the UK that's kind of built over the last few years and probably John Lewis was slightly ahead in setting that and I think showing that you could come out with a big emotional story and make people feel something at Christmas and that that would have an impact on your your sales and your profit I think a few other brands followed suit and that was brilliant for the industry because it you know you kind of get to see people's best work you get to see the nation responding to and wanting to watch the ads again 
And it almost begs the question, why don't we do that more often, not just at Christmas? But yeah, I think we're quite proud that we did sort of start that moment to some extent. Um, and it's, it's been quite, good for the it's quite a long time. It, it sort of kick-started in 2011 with an ad called The Long Wait about a little boy who couldn't wait to give his parents a present. And it's sort of built every year. And it was really, really interesting being involved. I got involved two, three years after that. And every year, the impact got bigger and bigger and bigger. And and one of the pieces of work I was involved in was um, one about uh, called Monty the Penguin, about a little penguin who's friendly the little boy. And we'd never really touched into, because it's a UK department story, it never really touched international sort of attention, really. But that year, it sort of transcended, it, it crossed over the pond. And, and it was the first year that we saw interest from places outside of the UK and built on it year on year to, to the pinnacle of sort of spoofs being done. And you launch the ad at 10 o'clock in the morning and spoofs are being done in America. This sort of phenomenon that we can't really comprehend every year. We, we know it's going to be big, but we don't know to what extent it's going to be big. Yeah, it, it's interesting to follow the the drop of the John Lewis commercial or ad around Christmas because people are waiting for it, then it drops, people are talking about it, and then there's this, yeah, but is that other campaign by the other brand as good as John Lewis? Yeah. Or is that John Lewis ad better than a year ago or three years ago? There's this real yeah. studying you of You compared against the industry, you compared against yourselves. And people, I described it to a junior team a couple of years ago, this is how it's going to play out. It's going to drop. It's going to be the best thing in the world for, it's going to trend, and then something else is going to drop. And then it's like, go home, John Lewis, this person's on Christmas, and then something else will happen, and then it'll be good. And, and it, it sort of plays out literally to the letter mm. in the same way every year. And it's easy to say, but you've got to be very careful not to get too emotionally swept up along with that because you'd end up a nervous wreck for about a week if you read and listened to everything because you've just got to do the best you can and put it out there and if people like it people like it people don't like it people don't like it if they think it's better than last year brilliant if they don't think it's as good as last year well at least you did last year so so there's there's you can't get too emotionally wrapped up in it otherwise i mean martin will be testament to this in past years come two days after launch i'm climbing the walls I can only imagine. And Martin, to your rhetorical question about why don't we work like this more often, the other thing that's been popping up online in the past couple of years is a slide of the timeline or the roadmap that the work yeah. for John Lewis takes where people are like, it doesn't happen within 30 to 60 days. It, it's built out. Can you run us through that? Uh, yeah, I can. I, I was actually responsible for that unofficial timeline. Um, I talked at an event last year. And, and the point was that we kind of have a rhythm that is tried and tested where we have enough time to develop things properly every year. So generally what happens is in January, we do a kind of bit of a wash up and we tend to watch other ads that came out that year and have a bit of a talk about what went well, what went less well, how are we feeling about this year? We then kind of get towards a brief. I then generally have to stand up in front of Rick's entire creative department and very nervously say, it's kind of the same brief again, but here's a few different ways we might look at it. Then we tend to have a bit of time to sort of really look at the creative development in detail and kind of go again and go again and, you know, pick out things that we like. And then and then we go to, to make something and then it's all about the craft and making that story as, as amazing as it can be. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes having that time, it feels like such a luxury, right? It's not often what you get on yep. a brand and I think a lot of people have been responding to that timeline going show this to a client next time they ask for something next month mm-hmm. but we, we found that having that time and space I think has made the work better than it would have been otherwise yep. it's that triangle thing isn't it you've got time money well I can't, I can't remember what it was probably shouldn't have mentioned it if I <laughs> quality <laughs> yeah. Good, but yeah time money quality uh, choose two 
yeah, you've got to have two to. Um, I mean, time on anything can be a great asset, but it can also be a curse. I think. I think sometimes you just need to get a wriggle on, and with time comes pontification, and with pontification comes changes and, and questioning the whole time. Whilst questioning is good for some things, other things you, you're just like, you know what? Let's just battle on. But I think time can be um, evil sometimes totally totally so i mean it's, it's great to sort of set up the conversation by exploring john lewis what i find really interesting talking to both of you already is we're going to talk about how one of the world's best agencies works but listening to you there's not a lot of pretense i'm sure at some point you have to act a little pretentious and arrogant i mean anyone doing creative work is is going to be a little bit arrogant because it's arrogant to try to invent the future and try to inflict your ideas on the world that's all i'm saying but but what i love about the conversation so far it's just like it's simple it's not fussy it's not fiddly and it can be quite counterintuitive because there are a lot of companies some are agencies some are i don't know non-agencies bringing in strategy and creative teams and they're not always sure how to make it work and then they fuss and fiddle with process and there's all this big jargon and, and whatnot but most of the people i know who are exceptional at what they do and obviously you and your teams must be exceptional for you to be one of the best agencies in the world the conversation is often quite low-fi and and straightforward first of all is that true I think it's most definitely true of me and the style. I just don't have the attention span for anything too convoluted and mm. and layered. And if I don't have the attention span, the consumer is not going to have the attention span. Okay. No one's waiting for us to produce something amazing and go, da, da, da. it has to be as simple and as, as impactful as possible. And that's not rocket science, but as Martin will um, vouch for, in a meeting that is too flouncy, I, I switch off immediately, which is not a good thing, being CCO, because sometimes you have to be in, in quite in-depth meetings. But I do struggle when things get too, too layered and packed, and it never leads to... Well, I actually think I disagree. I think there's two ways of doing great work. I think there's being really simple and very sort of intuitive and straightforward and always trying to think of different ways of doing things. And then I think there is the tortured work where you really sweat it and you really sort of dig, 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 dig. And, and just when you think you're there, you go some more. And, and, and there's two types of work. And, and it's the middle area where you're doing lots of layers and lots of digging, but the work's not. I'm not really making sense, but there's a lot of pretense around the, what we do and what we do is quite simple, really. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Rick often takes the piss out of me generally around the office for being base. He says I'm base because I, I like things to be really, really simple. And I just think that the, the best work out there tends to be simple and the best strategy tends to be simple. I saw something online recently where, you know, people were saying that really often the best brands are just associated with one word like Volvo and safety, for example, or, mm -hmm. you know, Guinness and waiting for a long time. And so I like things that are just really, really simple that I can explain it in a sentence. I often get planners to do what I call like an elevator pitch of the brief. So it just in 30 seconds, what's this all about? And I, do, I just find that then it tends to translate. If you can't explain the idea in black and white, simple words, then you're probably not onto something. And I saw something recently from Jim Carroll that she shared with Rick, which was he was saying that he tried to hire either fools or geniuses because both tried to keep it simple and almost everyone in the middle slightly overcomplicates. Yeah. And I, I think we're probably just a couple of fools, like Rick and I were just joking about this. So we just like to keep it simple 
because I think all the best stuff is. If you look at all the best work in the world, it's, it, it's simple. You get it, and that's why it enters your brain, and that's why you pass it on. For some people who work in agencies, simplicity is a risk because it's difficult for some agencies to charge for simplicity, and there's pressure because of all this access to all this data and analytics and all these tools. There's pressure in some places to have 100 slides before you even get to talk about an idea. That's a bit dramatic. I've seen it. That's a bit dramatic. Yeah, no. no. How do you keep simplicity safe? I think it's a discipline. I think you can have 100 slides, but ultimately you need the, the summary and you need the navigation and the signposting to make it really, really simple. So I think having a kind of simple, stealable summary, the one-page thing that a client can take away and go, yeah, this is what it is when anyone asks, I think is, is the discipline. I think about a pitch we did last year where at one point as a kind of strategic response, we did have I think it was like 100 and something slides, but we had it as a one-page summary at the end. And we talked about the simple summary up front. Then we went into the detail of the insight behind it and, and the thinking behind it and some of the data that we'd observed. And then we finished on the summary again. So that hopefully anyone who went through it would have the short version and the long version. But ultimately... Yeah, simple doesn't mean lack of rigour or lack of depth of thinking. It's just that you... you the, the only way I can describe it is when, when I get an idea I like, I run around, which, is, which I can't do now, obviously, for obvious reasons. I run around the agency telling anybody that will listen. And in the telling of it, that actually it develops. So I'll tell somebody the first bit and then I'll, I'll refine it to tell the second person and refine it to tell the third person. It's like a filtration process of the idea. I know there's something in there, but I need to tell it in as simpler form as possible. So the more people I tell, the more you sort of change it and filter it down. And that to me is, is an amazing exercise that really helps me because how can we get it to one sentence that you just go into somebody and you go, I've got an idea for you. It's about this. Da, 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 and, and you want people to go, that's fucking brilliant. So, so how do you narrow it down to the easiest digestible version of the idea? That doesn't mean there's not a lot of work that's gone into the idea and behind the scenes it's impeccably written and impeccably crafted, but distilling it to that sort of elevator pitch. Yep. Because once you have that, then you've got a really solid foundation to build on. Yep. Is, is there a, a creative philosophy at Adam and Eve? Like Richard, does your creative really. department, do they um, know what kind of work to get your attention with? Do they know what you're looking for? Yeah, I think there's a, a good idea of what good looks like. There's no real creative philosophy because... I want the work to be very, very different. There was a year, a couple of years ago, when Christmas, the whole Christmas advertising thing got so ridiculous and we had 13 different clients doing pieces of work. And when I went home that Christmas and sort of reflected on the year, I was so proud that all those 13 different pieces of work, whether it's for Virgin Atlantic or Temptations Cat Treats or H&M or John Lewis or Waitrose, was very different. And they all had their own unique thing and they all had their own unique soul to them. And it made me think that there was no real creative mantra at Adam and Eve. And I, I don't believe in those things. I, those things make me cringe a little bit. Hmm. Um, One thing I'd add to that, though, Rick, is like, I think that the way that you push your creative teams is to go for famous work. And a lot of agencies talk about that, but we mean famous in the real world, not just yeah. in the industry. So we're very proud of the work that anyone in the UK would know about if you wandered into a pub if you were allowed to or any high street they would be talking about it so whether that is a like a gene test for marmite that that got 
you know, billions of impressions before the ad had even come out and was in a show in, in Channel 4. Or whether that's Calm, where we put the statues on top of the building to make the nation talk about something they didn't want to talk about and get it talked about in Parliament. We're always looking for things which are culturally famous mm. because all of the data that Les Burnett and Peter Field have shared with the industry suggests that that is the number one strategy. Mm-hmm. You've got to break through and make sure you're famous. Okay. Yeah, I also think that because you're so in it, and maybe you haven't had to articulate it because the city that you're in, the industry in the city that you're in, the agency that you're in in that city, so much of these concepts are maybe assumed where if, for example, Richard, you had to come over to New York and lead the agency, you might actually have to work out and express things that you and your entire company have, have taken for granted. And, and I, I think that's, you know, having well, yeah. countries myself, I've had to think about these things a bit more. Yeah, and I, I've done that. I did um, a talk last year and, and it was called The Wonder of What the Fuck. And, and that's probably the closest thing to a creative philosophy that we have. But that's more about making sure that wherever you work is an environment where people feel safe to say whatever comes into their mind mm-hmm. at that moment. Because sometimes that's where the best ideas can come from. Yeah. I, I've worked at agencies where the creative speak and everybody knows their role. And we're not like that at all. I think good ideas can come from anywhere. And creating an environment physically and emotionally where people feel safe and they're not going to feel like they're going to be laughed at or their voice isn't heard or they're they're not the big confident creative team in the corner. Sometimes the best ideas hit you from the shy little quiet person in the corner that just happens to say one thing that sparks something to somebody else. Some of the best ideas have come from people from the most unexpected places. Mm -hmm. Part of that that Rick's talking about is it sounds very <laughs> base again, but uh, it's just making it really fun. Like, a, a fun environment yeah. where people can say silly things and muck about and go off on tangents and dick about a bit and say the wrong thing. And, you know, Rick sometimes talks about it being like the best episode of The Apprentice when they have to make the ad and come up with an idea. And that's what we get to do every day. So it should, it should be fun. Mm-hmm. It should be silly and it should be everyone throwing things in because then you just get to slightly more interesting places and also... You know, there's a bit of joy. People feel ownership, which is a massive thing. If people feel ownership, you get slightly more than you pay them for. (laughs) In a truly brutal sort of sense, you when people feel ownership, you get 110 percent out of them, and 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 people care, and that's what you want. And sometimes it's taken for granted in certain companies, and I've been into different companies where you can't believe the apathy that people are just in sort of robotic mode, Mm -hmm. and that's been the hardest thing this year with the pandemic is that physical distance so so in an office when we're all sat together and we're all we, it's easy to joke with each other and it's easy to have fun and it's easy to have those conversations around the side but when you're scheduled well you've got you, you're going to talk about this topic for half an hour and then you're going to jump off that call and jump onto another call and talk about this topic for half an hour those conversations don't really happen and I think we, there's a massive push we're trying to do. It's like, how do we get those conversations out? And how do we, how does the rest of the creative department know about, uh, not just the creative department, the rest of the agency know about some of the amazing ideas that are happening? Because that's also very inspiring. When if you if you know that there's something going on over there for Hey Girls, which is um, a period uh, poverty charity, and you're not involved, but you it, it instinctively pushes you to get exciting stuff going on and what you are involved in that's what we relied on in the physical building and now we're not in the physical building how do we keep that momentum and keep people wanting to like a slight competition with each other yeah i want to be working on the core project sort of thing yeah yeah that makes sense martin 
I was gonna, all I was going to add to that is that I think that is ultimately all we have is our ideas and our people and they're the lifeblood of what we do. And we try to create a sense of humility, I guess, but like a sort of healthy paranoia that we're only as good as our next idea. So, you know, it doesn't matter if it's just gone out and it was quite good. Like, what's the next one? What's the next one? How do we take it to the next level? And that, that can be a bit tiring, but it's it's what is brilliant about this industry when you get that kind of momentum and you can make ideas happen. Mm-hmm. That's why we all got into it in the first place. So we, we try to keep a little bit of that naivety in what we do every day and try and have fun with that okay what about the creative department and how the creative department works with at least the account planners if not account management is there a strong overlap is it porous or are documents written and then thrown across to a department for them to catch martin perhaps you could answer that one yeah well i think we are getting better at making it more fluid um because it's something that i believe in that it's very hard to write strategy in isolation of of the creative and where it's going. You know, you can write the most amazing PowerPoint, but if it can't be executed and it can't come to life, it just doesn't really exist. And the best things that I've worked on in my career have been the kind of blurred lines through the through the journey where you, you're able to kind of analyze the context and the problem and get to a kind of a brief, but then the creatives can take it to the next level and then you can help make it better from there. And, and I think when you start to sort of blur the lines and overlap, that's where the best stuff tends to happen. Mm. And so I think we're doing more and more of that between planners and creatives and trying to get kind of little gangs together and trying to get them to talk about briefs earlier and, and really just be on the same side rather than the sort of traditional write the brief on one page and then go up several floors in the lift to deliver it to creatives. I just don't think it generally works like that anymore. And I think the best work comes from that collaboration mm-hmm. and also just you know it, when, once you share something early maybe it's territories or how you're thinking about the problem it then just becomes a shared problem rather than oh i've got the brief and it's sort of you know it's perfect and it's signed off now can you turn it into something that immediately feels like a a slightly weird old school dynamic so we try to make sure that it's as collaborative as possible and i think rick and i try and show that in the way that we work as well because it's how i think we like to work Actually, I think it's the yeah. only way to work, if I'm honest with you. I think, I think gardeners where strategy can operate in a bubble over here and then you have a great meeting with a client and then that is then handed over to the creators because if, if you can't write work off that, it doesn't matter how good the client meeting is. It's almost dead in the water because you're not going to get good work off it. And then so you're just setting yourself up for bad client meetings down the line. So it's imperative that we work together. It's imperative that planners have great ad taste and know what great work looks like and and know the shorthand and, and and what I particularly love working with Martin is we've worked with each other for so many years that there is a shorthand there. There is when we're talking and I go off on a tangent and on this sort of ramble, there's a sense Martin knows what I'm talking about and the end game I'm talking about. And mm-hmm. I think that comes from, from having good ad taste. And I think taste is massively important. Somebody said to me, uh, recently, the, they were talking about hiring and they were saying that she's just got a really good taste. And I'd never really thought about it like that. And it really unlocked something in me that you want to surround yourself with people with great taste and that, that understand that understand what the finished product, not not necessarily should look like, but should should feel like what the soul of the finished product should be. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the, the job of a modern strategist. Well, I was going to ask, Rick, what, what do you and your teams want from the strategy slash account planning team? 
Um, that, I think, like a partner, a partner that we can shoot ideas around with. And, and instinctively, the two disciplines think about things slightly differently. And both disciplines need to have an understanding of what the other discipline does and, and what they can bring and how they can help them. I know there's things that I bring to the table that, say, Martin wouldn't be able to do but understands. And I know there's things that he most definitely brings to the table that I understand but would never be able to do just because that's just not how we're wired. But when they come together and there's a, there is this sort of mixing in the middle, I don't want to get too sort of like airy-fairy, but, but that's where good stuff happens, where I can call somebody up that is not necessarily going to answer me from a creative point of view, but from a strategic point of view. And I go, I've got this great idea. It's this, it's this, it's this. I think it's this. And then, and then very honestly goes, well, that doesn't really lean into what we need to do for the brand but if you changed it a little bit like that it's that it's 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 the working together to craft the answer Mm -hmm. the days of passing along i just find incredibly old-fashioned well on that note how often are you having to come up with campaign ideas in workshops in front of other agencies and clients or do you push against doing that kind of interaction probably not that often like sort of live on the spot kind of in in workshops i mean generally i don't think many ideas come out from workshops often it's just good for getting the right context and the right team together or maybe you've got something in advance that you've kind of been thinking about that you can kind of throw into a workshop but there's not always the kind of pressure to to crack it in the room i don't think but then you know sometimes when you just get the right kind of alchemy of you know what if we looked at it this way you can get to an answer extremely quickly so you don't necessarily need the hours of kind of chatting and you know all of the stuff that comes with that you know sometimes it's just the right people over process that can just get to something quickly i can imagine that someone listening to this who's potentially running an agency that would love to do one campaign like all of your campaigns just one just one or somebody who's potentially an account planner in an agency that is struggling to do great creative work i reckon they might find this conversation really frustrating because essentially what you're saying is you get together you try to have a bit of fun you try to keep each other feeling safe you talk it out you have an idea you walk it around you try to get other people's thoughts about that idea you go make it and you make the client or the brand famous and that would frustrate people who are like yeah but is, is that really just it and the answer is yeah that's just it but that's not everybody's experience of no, it's agony. Uh, I mean, it, it, yes, I mean, it's a very simplistic thing, but there's moments of agony in there. There's moments where I'll get on the phone to Martin and I'll like, we've got absolutely nothing. I can't believe it. And, and it has its highs and its lows. But it, essentially, it's that. It's, it, it, it's, it's surrounding yourself with people that you trust and, and as I say, with good, good taste and, and not getting too serious about it. Like always having someone there. Like as a creative, you can be programmed to overthink things a little bit and take. Like we're talking about John Lewis. Like that, that that's an incredibly stressful brief to be responsible for, and you can go. It can send you either way. And and having somebody there that, that very rationally says, "Oh no, but this is why don't we think about it like this and like this?" And so it has its moments of, for want of a better word, sort of agony. Like like the, 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 it's not all plain sailing, but mm-hmm. essentially that is it. Yeah. Yeah, like we read something a little while ago that, that sort of chimed with us, which is sort of we, we don't really know what we're doing, but we've done it a few times before. Mm-hmm. So I think we kind of have a few shortcuts for doing it, a muscle memory of what worked on another thing when we did it this way or that way and just kind of a little burst of energy or a, another way to look at the problem. But as Rick said, it's also agony in between because 
you know, it's quite, it's relatively easy to do quite good work that's sort of correct, but not very interesting. And, and that is sort of maybe friendly to what the client is looking for, but you have to really push and go again and, and keep pushing yourself if you want to do the very best stuff. And that can sometimes be exhausting, but hopefully it's, it's worth it in the end. So it is having that um, energy as well. I think we, we, we are 50% a business of talent and 50% a business of energy and relentlessness. It's very easy to just go, okay, that's good enough. And, and believe me, we are way guilty of that. But some things, when you push and you push, it, it, you've got to have a bit of stamina. Yeah. What about? And, and again, that's what this year has, has really taken it out of us. Yeah. As a collectively as the world, the people's stamina going into the industry. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just pushing for some more specifics because on the one hand, I totally relate to what you're talking about. Uh, you just get on doing good work. But that's also because there is a lot of assumed knowledge and experience uh, within your agency. Just being in London, you know, it has a particular attitude. I mean, I think it's like a third of London works in the creative industries of some sort. So there's a certain center of gravity there where people know each other's work. They know that they want to do work better than each other's work. You collect a lot of talent along the way and, and not all of that exists in every other city around the world. One thing I was curious about is as far as bringing in a new client, what are red flags that could appear through a, a pitch process or even discussions before the pitch is kicked off that might signal that a client is, is not necessarily right for you guys? I think a good signal is when a client has put you on the list for a particular reason and that they're very aware of your work and what you've done for, for another client, say, and therefore you're on it for a reason. You haven't simply been picked because you're a, another agency that's been put on a long list. I think if they know your work and they kind of know what you stand for, then I think you're on something because you're, you're there for a reason. And, and that's not always the case. So I think that that's often a, an early signal. And, and, and them getting us as well. I think, um, we we pitched recently and you could tell they, they just didn't get us. They just didn't get the dynamic of the group in the room. They didn't want to invest in that. And then we pitched a week later for a different client and they did get us. They wanted to invest in the people in the room. When you see that from, from a creative point of view, from an agency point of view, that the client wants to have another meeting with you and you want to have another meeting with them, then you know you're onto something special. When you finish a pitch and you're like, okay, I am indifferent to whether I see you again or not, you kind of know that's not right. But when you finish a pitch going, this cannot be the last time we have a meeting and we sit in a room and talk about creative ideas around your business. It just can't be the last time that happens. You know you're onto something special and nine times out of 10, the pitch comes your way. It comes your way with, with a client starting on the right path and the right foot that, that's for me when i know that clients the clients are a right fit what's what's key to a client getting you i don't know it's, i think it's like a personality thing often it's like do you feel like you want to work closely with that person like there's there's this test that i heard about which is the the two beers one puppy which is if you meet someone would you have a second beer with them as in you're enjoying yourself and you're just like hanging out with them and then secondly, if you had a puppy, would you trust them with your puppy for the weekend? <laughs> you know, it's sort of likability, but also trust, right? And I don't know, there's just certain people that you kind of chime with and you kind of go, yeah, I like you instinctively, but also I trust that you're trying to do the right thing. I kind of feel the ambition that you've got to change things at where you're at. And it feels like we could do good things together. And you know, when you have an amazing client, everything becomes possible because they just raise the bar and the benchmark and you you go the extra mile for them and you feel like you want to change the world for them 
and so all of our best work is when you've you've got an amazing client at the heart of it i love it i love it i'm kind of curious about what it's been like to manage teams through the pandemic as well uh, it, it must be challenging maybe challenging and rewarding in equal parts but how have you both found leading teams remotely through a pandemic and uh, i think the uk is in its uh, is it the second lockdown third second third how's it been uh, it's been horrible it's, I've, I've hated it um because you're so removed you've had to have difficult conversations you've had to deal with people who the last thing they want to do is get on another call or get off a call and start thinking about how to make a really brilliant idea for for people's people's stamina has been hit and there's no there's no differentiation between work people are homeschooling it's, it's been terrible it's been really hard and and especially when you put so much value in personal one-on-ones and making sure that everybody's okay and making sure that everybody is an environment that they can be their best creatively it's been near on impossible and I had a chat with the creative department at the end of the year. I mean, we were, we were chatting throughout the year, obviously, and, and as a support. And, and, and the thing was, you've been incredibly responsible and you have made sure that things have stayed afloat and you've all behaved amazingly. Now it's time to be a little bit more irresponsible and to be a little bit more selfish and, and look after yourself creatively. So, so go for the opportunities, be a bit more selfish in what you go for and what you do and what you, because one of, one of the things I have as a creative director is I want everybody to leave the building at the end of the year with something they're insanely proud of. So the test is when you go to the pub on Christmas Eve and you see that pal that you've not seen for a year, how was your year? You have something to say, well, I, yeah, it was great. I did this, I did this, I did that. And that to me is, is the biggest motivation in a creative because you don't feel, you do judge by time lengths and, and, and that just wasn't possible last year. It just wasn't, it physically wasn't possible. We had so much amazing work that just stopped the minute the virus hit. And then we had to deal with the crisis of the virus. And then we had to deal with, so so my mission this year is to supercharge that, is to make sure that the people that did get work out last year continue to, and the people that didn't get more than their fair share because it's super important. And that's the only thing you can do because that's the only thing I can affect. I can't affect what's happening with it. I can't affect what's happening with the business. I can't affect what's happening with the, the pandemic. But I can try and make sure that everybody gets their fair share and doesn't feel like they've, they've wasted a year mm-hmm. or two years, which is massively important in a, in a creative's lifespan. Mm-hmm. Martin, how's the strategy slash account planning team been? I suppose, as Rick said, it's probably equally awful and tricky. I mean, like I love the 30 planners that I have the privilege of looking after and, and they make me look like I know what I'm doing to some extent. And what I've tried to do is is have sort of regular personal check-ins with each and every one of them to, to really check that they're actually okay and make sure they haven't got too much on. And it's really hard when you work in something which is about inspiration and stimulus. And, and also as a planner, you're trying to bring a bit of the outside world in. And when you're stuck in, it's really hard to do that and to feel inspired every day. So it's just, it's been a bit tricky. We tr- we have like once a week, we have a kind of social get together and we have like a WhatsApp group to just share bits and bobs and just to try and keep in touch with each other. But it, it has been hard, but they have been absolutely amazing. Like all of them have, have sort of really stepped up and gone the extra mile and, and they've been ace. So yeah, it's been hard, but hopefully things are going to start looking up this year. Mm. All right, last question. What do you think's been key to you both having 
what seems like a pretty good and trusting relationship. I mean, to the point that you would actually appear in public talking about this together. What's at the heart of your relationship? I suppose what's at the heart of any relationship that works is trust and and a shared shared voice. That I don't, for one minute, feel that there's a personal agenda going on. We have an agenda, and it is to make the work better, and we trust each other to help do that. When you look at how the agency functions, I think I think trust is one of the main attributes that you need. You need to trust the people that you surround yourself with and that you work with from every level. So young creators need to trust the rest of the department. The rest of the department need to trust the creative directors. Creative directors need to trust the ECDs. You need to trust the... And I think once you have that, then, then you can pretty much do anything, conquer anything. What, what, a, what a beautiful love letter. Martin, I don't know if you want to add onto that love letter. Well, I th- I th- <laughs> if, you, if you take the two beers, one puppy test, I would have more than two beers with Rick. don't know if I would let him look after a puppy. I feel like that could... <laughs> could lead to some stories you know i think it's i like him personally and what he stands for and his values i trust him and i respect him i think he's one of the best creatives in the world and i can say that about him because he wouldn't say it about himself and we have a, a shared agenda which is we just want to have fun one of those things like, somebody once told me when i was a, a student that like you just want to be the person that people don't mind having around at 3 a.m on a pitch and it's one of the bits of advice that always stuck with me you've got to be the person that, that isn't irritating at 3am on a pitch. And that comes from, from being there, from being helpful, from, from having no ego, from, from being useful. And I think um, maybe that's a bit of a tangent, but... Oh, that's good. That's good. Get, I'm also getting excited um, about ideas. That's the thing we still try and do every day is get excited about ideas. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then, then a lot of good things tend to, to go from there, I think. Mm-hmm. Look, I, I love this conversation. Because it feels a bit like home, in a sense, because some agencies I've worked at in New York have been way too infatuated with process. And I realized early on that companies that are infatuated with process are infatuated with process because they don't quite understand creativity. The way you have both described it, obviously very talented people. Uh, and probably you really do have words that can describe what you're doing in a very specific way, even though we might have heard you you know, be, be calm and, and a bit lo-fi with how you've described how you go about work. But at the end of the day, it, it really is just a bunch of people finding out some stuff, getting together, having ideas, sharing them and going and making them. And that can be really underwhelming if you're starting out in a career and you've been told that there's like this secret sauce and all this sort of stuff. All I would say to anyone out there who's newish to the industry or trying to get into it is you're probably not going to have the longest career. Numbers do drop off after the age of 40, definitely after the age of 45. If you can get a stint in an agency like Adam and Eve DDB, if you're fortunate enough to be able to get uh, that kind of opportunity, that just kind of gets it. You'll spend way less time talking about how to get it, having to explain what strategy is or account planning is, having to describe what an idea is. You'll just be able to get on with doing the work. And I, I, I wish that kind of stint in a place like Adam and Eve DDB on anybody with good intentions because it's, it, I'd imagine it's not always easy. Obviously, there's agony there and can be conflict, et cetera. But it's very different to going to an agency or a company that's not used to having copywriters and art directors or account planners slash strategists and having to defend what you do to people who don't want it there. And so that's kind of been my takeaway from this this interaction. I don't know if that's useful to you though, but thank you for being here. If people want to find you individually on the internet, Martin, are you active? 
I am on Twitter. I don't tweet very much, but I am there. You can also, I'm sure you can get hold of me at Adam and Eve if anyone wants to. Yeah. Rick, where are you On Twitter and uh, Adam and Eve. All right, I'll put the links in the show notes. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. I know you're superstars and you do superstar work that the industry in the UK at least compares itself to regularly. Congratulations. Appreciate you honoring me and, and, and listeners with your time. Uh, thank you very much for joining me on Sweathead, Martin Beverly and Rick Brim from Adam and Eve DDB. Thanks, Mark. Peace. <laughs>